And we could open our Bibles to Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. The section before this section, which we covered the last three Sundays, was Jesus' teaching on what life will be like leading up to what is called the tribulation. And he taught that life is going to get increasingly more difficult. Wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, natural disasters. And we've seen that all throughout history, but in the period leading up to the end of days, those things will happen with greater frequency and with greater strength, much the way labor pains progress. And probably societies ever since Jesus said these words for the last 2,000 years have felt, it's got to be close. It's got to be close. It's got to be close. Um, And certainly our society is no different. It just seems like it's close. Of course, it's always accurate to say we're closer than we've ever been. But that's just a chronological fact. And yet when we look at world events and see what's unfolding with the rise of technology... The world's becoming so interconnected that we seem to be heading towards some kind of finality. Um, we used to be separated as nations and things could happen within our own borders or just in countries surrounding us. But we are so interconnected. All this talk about uh, a one world order and, and uh, plenty of people looking for some kind of centralized government that'll oversee the entire planet's resources. To some, that's very exciting, and for us, that is scary. That is just downright scary. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, the saying goes. To give man that much power means you have a wrong view of man. We saying, here I am, sinful man, saved by your grace. The rest of the world sees man as a uh, basically good and is getting better and better and better due to evolution and education. I don't know which world they're keeping track of, but it's part of that blindness the Bible talks about, that spiritual blindness. Really, has man ever been able to govern that well? Do you really want to give the reins over to a centralized world government? No, and yet that's the direction we're headed And you can try to stop it, and um, prophecy is such that if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. In spite of man's best efforts to stop it, you also see that man, despite his best efforts, doesn't realize that he's walking right into history. He isn't aware that he's fulfilling prophecy. And these major events are headed right down the path that God's laid out for us. And when we get to the tribulation, it's not a passage that's preached that much, probably because it lends itself better to a Bible study. I know uh, one of our small groups recently finished a study on Revelation, or maybe one of our ABF groups. You just really need to take time and look through all the prophecies uh, one by one. It's not something that you uh, can knock out in the pulpit in, in one sermon. Yet I'm going to do that anyways, which means we're going to fly over the tribulation at 30,000 feet, get a good satellite view, okay? And then we'll we'll dip down and get a closer view and then come back up. Um, 
But I want you to just have a good overall view of what the tribulation is, why, uh, what Jesus taught on it, and what part will play in the tribulation. And then finally, what should our response be? And I realize that on any given Sunday, if you think about everyone in the room, we all come with our own baggage and our issues and thoughts and concerns, and maybe there's fun things coming up, vacations, maybe uh, there's struggles in your life, maybe there's marital struggles or a rebellious child, maybe there's job uncertainty, financial insecurity, all of these myriad of thoughts contained in this one room. And Jairus prayed before we worship that we'd be able to leave that outside. Well, there's nothing like teaching on the tribulation to just cut through all of that. Just cut right through all of that and say, this thing is huge. It is going to be big. It is going to be terrible. It'll either leave you in a state of, of fear where you just kind of want to deny that it's going to happen. But I hope that won't be your response today because Jesus said to fear not. He's in control of all of this. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have saving faith in Christ Jesus. He has said and promised that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Any suffering on this earth is temporary compared to the glories of heaven to come. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we need not fear any enemy. And uh, because I'm a pre-trib rapture guy... I believe that Christians won't be here during the tribulation. I understand we do have mid-trib rapture believers, uh, but that's good. You'll be gone before the great tribulation, which is the worst half of it. And we might have some post-tribbers here who believe the church will be here during the whole tribulation. I'm not going to get into arguments whether pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Um, no. That's, that's better for a Bible study with a cup of coffee and, and a good leader who makes sure the discussion, yeah, doesn't get too heated. We're all believers. We're, we're going to be with Jesus. Amen? So uh, if you're mid-trib, it's just going to take another three and a half years for us all to be together. And if you're post-trib, it's going to be seven years. But eventually, we're all going to be together. Where does the tribulation then fall in history? So here's an outline, seven major events that are going to happen according to the Bible. We've established that uh, we're going to be a pre-mill uh, church here, although we're not going to exclude anyone from fellowship with us if they're not pre-mill. But basically, we believe there's going to be a literal 1,000-year kingdom where Jesus reigns here on earth. And that he will return before that thousand years starts. So we're in the church age right now. He's building his church, one believer, one soul at a time. He's not just building this church. He's building local churches all over the planet. But the church, the universal church, is made up of all believers. Often when you look in a local church body, he teaches us that the church is filled with believers and unbelievers. We're not to discern who the unbelievers are, not to look at one another kind of suspiciously, like, are you a real believer or not a real believer? Jesus said at the end of times, the wheat will be separated from the tares, and that you're not to pull out the weeds uh, at the same time, because you might rip out some of the wheat. 
So the two coexist in the church, and we preach the gospel and talk about the marks of true saving faith and trust that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and, and righteousness. Well, when, when all that have been ordained and elected to, to be part of the church, uh, I believe Jesus will come back. Again, I'm pre-trib. We learn in Second Thessalonians what that looks like. You won't find the word rapture in your Bible. It's a Latin word, but uh, we use it to describe, we use a lot of Latin words to describe uh, theological truths. Uh, it's a catching up. And so God will catch believers up in the air and remove the church with him. And then some or all of the tribulation will then happen. And then he'll return to establish the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, this earth will get to see what government is supposed to really look like. And then at the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan will be released for another short period of time. There'll be a great battle. He'll be ultimately defeated. He's already defeated. Jesus defeated him on the cross. But he'll ultimately be defeated and um, thrown into the lake of fire forever. The great white throne of judgment event will happen where everyone will be judged. We're already judged and found justified because the blood of the land covers us. So we don't have to worry about the great white throne of judgment. But unbelievers will be judged judged justly, and um, then eternity happens, and a new earth and a new heavens are made, a new earth and a new heaven. So at the beginning of history, Jesus created the heavens and earth. He created man in his image. On the seventh day, he rested it, and he said his creation was good. In Genesis 3, man falls into rebellion, and the spiritual kingdom is now tainted with sin, and so is the physical, literal kingdom. And Jesus is going to restore and redeem both of those kingdoms. Right now, he's restoring the spiritual kingdom, one soul at a time, reconciling believers to himself. And if you're a believer in Christ, he now reigns in your heart. He reigns on the throne of your heart. You no longer love your sin, but you hate sin and you love righteousness. Not to say you live a perfect life now, but each day growing more and more into the image of Christ. Eventually, he'll come and redeem and reconcile the physical creation, and those two realms will be completely reconciled in the new heaven and new earth. Oh, glorious day. That will be. No, no more sin. No more rebellion. Well, what happens before that? We're going to zero in on the tribulation. And let me read for you Mark 13, 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days 
And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or Behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Take heed, I have told you everything in advance. Everything we need to know about that day, He's told us. Everything that we need to know. We don't know everything, but everything we need to know, He's told us in advance. So what is this tribulation period? Well, we get the full teaching about this in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. You can turn there or just look on the screen, and we're going to zero in on Daniel 9, 24. It reads, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So when you think about Israel's history, if you know your Old Testament, you think of a nation that is continually going through cycles of repentance and then apostasy. Repentance, apostasy. Turning towards God, turning away from God. And this 70 weeks is the time when all of that is just finally going to, to uh, the beginning of wrapping all that up to make way for the final restoration. And the 70th week started at a very particular time, and the Bible is very clear when that 70 weeks is going to start. It's also clear that the 70 weeks, each week represents Seven years. Okay, so 70 times 7 would be 490 years. Now, you think of the time of Daniel, and we're way past 490 years. So, what's going on here? Let's read verse 25. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, seven and 62, 69. From the time there's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be that 69 weeks. Times seven is 483 years. When was Daniel receiving this prophecy? You remember the story of Daniel. He was one of the young men taken away in exile when Babylon... Um, destroyed, defeated and destroyed and overthrew the southern kingdom, Judea. Remember, the northern kingdom had already gone down to Assyria. And then the Babylonian Empire replaced the Assyrian Empire. So we're, we're during the time of exile. Jeremiah the prophet said exactly how long the exile was going to be. And so Daniel already knew the exile was going to be 70 years. He wanted to know from God what was going to happen next. So from the time there was a decree to rebuild the city to the time Messiah the Prince comes, that's when Jesus comes, that's going to be that 483 years, 69 weeks times 7 years for each week. What's amazing is that how accurate and how specific Bible prophecy is. 
I think sometimes we tend to think that prophecies is kind of nebulous symbolism and it's, uh, you know, it's too much for me to understand. Some people really get into biblical prophecy. It's kind of their favorite part of theology. And for others, maybe biblical prophecy just seems uh, just too out there, too hard to grasp. But if you've got a, 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 just a good book on Bible prophecy that walks you through it, it's amazingly specific. The time when the temple was decreed to be rebuilt, it was done by Artaxerxes. He was the ruler. Um, it was also prophesied in Isaiah that a king named Cyrus would decree that the Jews come back from exile. And that was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And the prophecy was so specific that the name of the actual king was listed. And indeed, a man named Cyrus decreed that, that the exiles return home. Home. Then Artaxerxes decreed that the temple be rebuilt. And the amazing thing about this is that not only did he decree that the temple be rebuilt, the decree made it illegal for anybody to molest the Israelites while they were rebuilding the temple. And it set aside tax money to pay for the rebuilding of the temple. So here's somebody who's not a Jew, not a leader of the Jews, through God's providential hand, making prophecy happen through a pagan. And you see this all throughout Scripture. Pagan kings doing exactly what God needs them to do in order to fulfill prophecy. From that time that that decree went out to the time Jesus entered the Jerusalem on the donkey, turns out to be exactly 483 years. Amazing. Amazing. At first, when you read it and you do the math, you're like, this doesn't add up. But the problem is, is that the Jewish calendar is lunar, and our Gregorian calendar is solar. And if you just use a little conversion, a little math, you do a little math to do prophecy, but just, just a little bit, so don't be scared if you're not a math person. It actually works out exactly to that 483 years. And it really bolsters your faith. When you come to Christ because you're convicted of sin and you know you need a Savior. And then people are afraid, though, that the Christian faith might be, you know, all faith and no facts. Because that's what the scientific, enlightened world would have you believe. Oh, well, you, you need religion because you can't handle, you know, the truth and you can't handle reality. And yet you look at these prophecies and you're like, wow, it is so specific. It is so clear. And it just bolsters my faith. I hope it really encourages you to, wow, this, this God, not that I need these things because your faith is enough, but to have a reasonable, informed faith, even better. We would expect if that God is real, which he is, and that he is in charge of history, which he is, then we would read in his word and find a God who is in charge of history. And that is exactly what we read. So much so that while I was in seminary, they introduced us to the opposition camp because they felt we should know the truth and all the lies. And liberal scholarship always attacks biblical prophecy saying that another writer came in later and added those parts to the scripture because it's just too specific of a prediction. Like, no, nobody could have predicted that. You're like, well, yeah, that's the whole point. It's supernatural. God revealed that. But if you're a, a, a liberal Christian, you tend not to believe in the supernatural parts of Scripture, which then is like, what's the point in having a faith, right? Who needs, a, who needs faith then? And 
That's why you see liberal denominations eventually just fizzle out and die off. Why come to church on Sunday to worship a God who's not God? They have better things to do with Sunday and better things to do with my money. The sad thing is, is that liberals will always try to infiltrate conservative churches because that's where all the people are and the money and all the good stuff's happening and they want to bring their doctrine in and ruin another church. So don't, don't do that. We're going to stay uh, doctrinally sound in this pulpit and if you ever hear anything that isn't from the Bible, somebody better call an elder. All right. John MacArthur had said when they started Master Seminary that 20 or 30 years after he's gone, it'll turn liberal. It's just what happens to seminaries. Um, the largest seminary for the Southern Baptist Convention, Southern Seminary, which is where Nathan went, turned liberal decades ago, and um, the current president, Al Mohler, helped turn it around. It's very conservative and a great, great seminary now. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention is one of now the uh, last vestiges of real conservative biblical theology. And it's a large denomination. That's a good thing in an an optimistic um, truth. What happens then next? Let's keep reading Daniel. After the 62 weeks, that's the 62 plus the 7, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Has that happened? Yeah, he came in. Triumphal entry, and a week later he was killed on the cross. So that's happened. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, who's the prince who is to come? Is it talking about an actual prince, or is it talking about Satan, or is it talking about both? I believe we've got one of these near-far prophecies like we talked about. The near was the temple being destroyed in AD 70. Who destroyed it? Which empire destroyed the temple in AD 70? Roman Empire. Okay. Do you know that in Daniel 2, there's another prophecy? Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, has this dream, and he can't interpret it, and there's like this statue, and it's made up of all these different parts. You remember that? And he kind of just goes off the deep end, and he says, somebody better interpret this dream, or I'm going to start killing all my advisors and all my magicians and all my uh, spiritualists. And Daniel was known as a spiritual guy, and he said, give me time to pray and ask God for the interpretation. And God did give Daniel the interpretation. And it turned out that statue represented four kingdoms. Four kingdoms. Uh, The first kingdom was the Babylonian kingdom, which was the one that Nebuchadnezzar was ruler over. And he said, that kingdom's going to fall. And it's going to be replaced by a Medo-Persian kingdom, a blend of the Persian Empire and the Medes. And who was the next leader after Nebuchadnezzar? Darius the Mede. He's the one who threw Daniel into the lion's den. After that, that kingdom would crumble and a third great kingdom would happen. And it was a Greek kingdom. That's the kingdom of Alexander the Great. That has happened. Alexander the Great ruled over like 90% of the known world at the time. But like all good kingdoms, they all fail. There will only be one kingdom that doesn't fail. The fourth kingdom is Rome. Can you imagine? I mean, the Bible is predicting this Roman Empire hundreds of years before it actually happened. 
And the, the Roman kingdom was like the feet of the statue, right? And it was made of, of uh, a mixture of um, metals and, and clay because uh, it was a conglomerate of, of kingdoms. And we, we're told that this kingdom will go away and come back. And so we're waiting for the Roman Empire to come back in some sense. We're like, well, how is that going to happen? We'll get to that a little bit later. At the end of that prophecy, though, there's a fifth kingdom, and that's the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom of heaven, which says will last forever. Jesus will reign, and we sing at Christmas, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That, that event happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. But it will happen again in the future. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, the prince that is to come, the part in parentheses I added, who's he referring to? The prince that is to come will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. How much is a week? Seven years. So this is going to be the tribulation period. It's going to be seven years. And there will be this leader who comes out of this reassembled Roman Empire, and he will make a treaty with Israel, bringing in peace and prosperity for a time. And people will fall for this. They're going to fall for it. Whoever this guy is, he's influential, he's charismatic, he's not in the religious sense. He's got that kind of personality that people say, this is the guy who's going to bring peace and prosperity. This is the guy that finally is going to sign that peace treaty with Israel. I mean, how many times do we hear in the news, you know, somebody's going to sign the treaty with, with Israel, finally bring peace to the Middle East. Well, this is the guy who's going to do it. And when everybody's guards down, halfway through the seven years, he's going to break the treaty, and literally all hell's going to break loose. And that second half of the tribulation period is called the Great Tribulation. Great not because it's awesome and wonderful, but great because it's the biggest time of trouble in the history of the world like no one's ever seen or no one will ever see. And we read that. Jesus said, said it'll be a time of trouble that this world's never seen before and will never see again. Maybe that's why I lean pre-trib. I don't want to be around for it. And it says, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So that implies that in the middle of the tribulation, the temple will be there and sacrifices will be made at the temple. So a temple needs to be rebuilt. We've talked about how there's this organization right now that has plans to rebuild the temple. I've seen one set of plans where the Dome of the Rock is gone and another set of plans where they fit the temple to the right of the Dome of the Rock. I, I don't know how it's going to look, but the temple's going to be rebuilt. This organization is also right now building all of the things that go inside the temple ex to exact biblical specifications. And you can go, when you go to Israel, uh, one couple told me they're in Israel, they got to see some of these utensils and the artifacts and the menorah, and they keep it behind bulletproof glass, and it's heavily guarded. And so, talk about uh, tension in the Middle East. When you've got one set of theology from the Muslims and competing with another set of theology from the Jews and the Christians are in the area too and you've got the Jews saying, oh, we're going to rebuild a temple. It's going to happen. 
look, we've got all the pieces. I mean, they're serious about this. These pieces cost big money in the millions of dollars because they're made out of gold. You know, it's, it's not a bluff. The Jews are, are uh, fully intending to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here comes your jet tour. Here's what's going to happen during that seven years. The first half, we said that this leader rises up. He comes somewhere from a rebuilt Roman Empire. And, you know, what happened just over a decade ago in Europe where Rome is? The European Union formed. So we have... uh, many of the areas that were part of the original Roman Empire forming alliances now. So you're like, well, okay, maybe that's what the prophecy's talking about. We see like a Roman Empire coming back together. There's ten toes in the statue, each representing a nation that's part of this rebuilt Roman Empire. And you can... You can start counting uh, nations. Right now, there's more than 10 nations in the European Union, except some of them are small, and you never know what's going to happen in the European Union. Remember when there was Czechoslovakia, and then now it's the Czech Republic, and then in Slovakia, and now it's like some other names now. I'm watching World Cup, you know, and you're like, what nation is that? I can't keep track. It's like they get a new name every few years, so... Um, By the time we get to the end of times, no doubt in my mind, we'll be down to ten nations exactly. Which ones they are is where you get to kind of have the fun with biblical prophecy, and this is where the coffee shop debates happen. Which nation's going to be, you know, part of the ten nations? But here we have history unfolding before our eyes. No doubt in my mind that there's going to be ten nations in a revived uh, Roman Empire. And yet somehow... uh, the lands of the east are involved. Muslim countries, and you're like, well, how are Muslim countries going to be part of a revived Roman Empire? Anyone been watching what's going on in Europe right now? The Islamification of Europe? Um, pretty simple. It's more math. If you don't have more babies than people who die at the end of the year, you lose your nation. It's just that simple. If the birth rate falls below a certain number, you just cannot replace the inhabitants of your country. All right, so you look at our European countries right now. I have a friend who I grew up with who moved to Spain when she was uh, about 20, 22, and ended up becoming a Spanish citizen. Sorry, they they just get kicked out of the World Cup. Is that what happened to Spain? Um, She came and visited uh, our house with her parents last year, and I was asking her about this whole thing about the birth rate in Spain, and she's like, oh, yeah, none of my friends have kids. We're just not having children. I said, why not? They're too expensive. Just too expensive. You know, I didn't want to offend her, so I didn't say, come on. (laughs) You know, it's not too, too expensive. You put your trust and faith in God, he says children are a blessing, and he'll provide. He'll provide. And she said, well, none of my friends are married and none of them are having children, so there's really no pressure on young people to get married and have children. Unlike here, where you feel like if I don't have a child yet, somehow there's something wrong with me, you know. Um, There's just no societal pressure in those European countries 
to have children. Yet there's all these low-income jobs that need to be performed and nobody wants to do them. This is the real reason nobody's having children. They want a high-income job and they want to be able to go and do whatever they, they want, you know. And we all think about taking a trip to Europe and visit all those countries and all the wonderful things there are to do there. We're people who live there. That's just what they want to do with their whole life. So who's going to do those low-income jobs? Who's willing to come in and do low-income jobs? The Muslims. Yeah, <laughs> there's a hand in the back. We'll send you to Europe and, and give you a job. Sounds great. Um, and it's always been the strategy of the Muslim countries to change a country Muslim by just having more babies than the people who live there. And what's fascinating is the socialist governments in the European nations are giving free housing, free health care, food, and education to the Muslim immigrants and allowing them to keep their own separate laws. So it's only a matter of time before these European countries become fully Islamicized. So if you're wondering how in the future there's going to be this revived Roman Empire and yet somehow these Eastern nations, biblical nations that have been around for thousands of years are going to be involved, there, there you have it. And it's, uh, it's, it's happening before our eyes. It's just amazing. Like I said, it's like it can't be stopped. There's a few voices in the European nations saying, danger, time out, we've got to do something, but people don't want to do anything. It's too late. It's just, it's too late. A whole generation has passed of people who don't want to have children. And you're like, wow, look at, look at humanity. Look at biblical prophecy and how humanity just walks right in line with it. Some say the same thing's happening here in our country. The only difference is, is that most of our immigrants um, aren't typically Muslim, although there are large Muslim pop populations here in our country. And they, f they do fight and argue in our courts to have their own laws I do know they've won some battles in our schools where we say there's you know, no religion in school, no prayer in school, no Christians are supposed to be, no evangelizing, but if there's Muslims in the schools, they're often given their own place to pray and their own, they get to, you know, if the school has a uniform code, they don't have to follow the uniform. They can wear uh, what, what Islam requires them to wear. So all kinds of interesting, fascinating, and maybe even terrifying things going on. And yet Jesus says, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. He's got it all under control. It's all part of the plan. At the beginning of the tribulation period, we see that these seven seals in Revelation begin to be opened. And each seal is a different judgment. And if we've got young people in the room, a seal is a wax stamp that closes a scroll. It's not like a, you know, it's not a, it's not a seal with a ball on its nose. Although that would be frightening, right? Seven seals coming out of the sky. <laughs> and the, the seal's broken, the scroll's open, and they read the judgment, and then the judgment happens. And the, the first seal, a uh, rider on a white horse comes, but it's not Jesus. Jesus comes on a white horse at the end of the tribulation. But at the beginning of the tribulation, 
a rider on a white horse comes, and he's got a crown and a bow. And the crown represents authority, right? It'll be one with great authority, and a bow represents an army. So you have great authority and a great army. And this is, this is the guy who's going to come and make this false peace. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be anarchy. And whenever there's chaos and anarchy, as Pastor Andy taught us on Mother's Day, what fills in the void? Fascism. Because people don't want chaos and anarchy. And so they'll be clamoring for a leader, and they'll agree to all kinds of things. When you hear about the kinds of laws that they're trying to pass um, that are supposed to be binding for all nations, it's a really scary thing. Very scary thing. Some of those laws are that homeschooling is illegal, and yet um, we've, we've been fighting those laws. Um, I don't know if you're following the story of the German family whose kids were taken away from them because they homeschooled them. Just kick down the door, you know, with automatic weapons and take, take your kids because they won't put them in school. Um, you know, oh, that'll never happen here. <laughs> I hear the... Yeah, that'll never happen here. Um, just look at history. It, this is man's sinfulness. We, we just get to this place where we think we know better and absolute authority um, is not a good thing to give to people, which is why our founding fathers split up the power, purposely making sure that nobody would become too powerful in our nation. You go through the other seven seals. I'm not going to go through each one. But when the seventh seal is ready to be opened, you have seven more judgments called the trumpet judgments. So at the sounding of each trumpet, another form of judgment falls on the earth. Hard to say where the halfway mark is. Very hard to say. Does it happen at the end of the seven seals? Some people believe that. Do some of the trumpet judgments start before the halfway part? Some people believe that. Hard to tell. Not worth arguing with people over. Is worth having a good discussion over a cup of coffee about. Okay? I just want to keep that clear. Uh, There's been some real ugly scenes in evangelicalism over biblical prophecy. Um, Not so much now, but about 20, 30, 40 years ago. Oh, goodness. The battles between all the different eschatologies really got ugly. Kind of embarrassing for the church. Someone needed to step back and say, whoa, we're all believers. (laughs) We're on the same team. At the end of the seventh, uh, when the seventh seal is open, it says 144,000 Jews come to saving faith. 12,000 from each tribe. That'll be an amazing thing. Some of these things are so amazing, I'd like to be around to see it, but other stuff is so terrible, I don't want to be around to see it. Also, after the 144,000 Jews believe, it says there's a multitude of those who come to faith that we would call tribulation saints. So if you don't believe before Jesus comes back, there's still a chance to believe. I don't think you want to wait, though. You know, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. If you think you'll believe then, but you won't believe now, what makes you think you're going to believe then? But certainly things are so terrible that it does drive people to repentance. 
And probably when all the Christians disappear, it's the only thing holding this planet together and keeping you know, God's common grace through the Christian church. Without Christians, there'd be no, no hospitals and no outreach, no mercy ministry. Could you imagine a world with no Christian love and no Christian self-sacrifice? That's what the tribulation is going to be like. And I think people are going to wake up and realize those Christians were right. And, and they'll repent and, and come to Christ. After the, the, the seventh trumpet, then you get the seven bowls. And I'm skipping a lot. And again, people who know their eschatology are like, hey, you just skipped over the two witnesses and the army of 200 million. And yeah, there's going to be an army of 200 million coming from the east. And for, for hundreds of years, uh, readers of the Bible have said, uh, it's almost too hard to believe. Maybe the 200 million isn't a literal number. But here we are in times where there's 2 billion people in China because of their one-child policy. People have been only keeping sons. You know, it's a terrible thing how many female Chinese have been aborted over the decades. Now you've got a whole country full of young men with nobody to marry. And young men need to get married because we need to settle down. We, we need... We need uh, the sanctifying uh, presence of a gentle and tender wife who keeps us focused on the right things in life. But could you imagine all these men in China with no one to marry, all that testosterone, no jobs? And so what's the government do with all these men so that they don't create anarchy? Come join the military. And they train and they train and they train, but now they're trained and ready to fight and nobody to fight. You can't hold those people, those, those people back much longer. Two, could you imagine 200 million? Yes, I could imagine 200 million in an army coming from the east. The seven bowls of wrath are so terrible, I'm not going to read them. You should read them. But don't read them right before bed. It is scary, scary stuff. Talking about like a third of the world population just, boom, gone. Um, And the descriptions are so vivid of what it's going to look like on earth that it's terrifying. What does the writer of Hebrews say? It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. As believers, we're drawn to God because of His love and His mercy and the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. But don't forget, this is also a God of wrath. A just God who is just in pouring out his wrath on rebels. And remember, he once flooded the entire earth. He once flooded the entire earth and only eight were saved. So what are the Lord's instructions, though, for those who are left? Now, because we're not going to argue over the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, we should all know what to do if we're here when this happens. We should all know what to do. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, this clearly is a picture of this, this leader, this antichrist who made this peace treaty, breaking the peace treaty and setting himself up as God right in the temple. Right in the temple. You'll worship me. You'll worship me. 
That's the abomination of desolation. You see that happen, and it says those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, this is one of the reasons why I'm pre-trib. He's saying those who are in Judea. It, it sounds specifically like he's talking about the Jews who are still left after the church is raptured. If you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Get, get to the surrounding mountains. Don't stop to pack. Leave, because the slaughter is coming. By that time, you think about our, our modern uh, ways of keeping track of people, and they're going to know who, who everyone is, what they believe, what they don't believe, where they live, where to find them. Flee to the mountains. And he says, woe to those who are pregnant. Not in the same way he said to the Pharisees, woe to you hypocrites. This is just, woe, it's going to be worse for those who are pregnant. Why? You can imagine how hard it is to run and hide in the mountains when you're pregnant. I have to imagine. I, you know, <laughs> but, and if you're nursing, even harder to run with a nursing babe. And if it's in the winter, even worse. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation. So we haven't seen those days We've seen horrible days in, the, in human history, have we not? We're kind of living in a time where you can be lulled to sleep here. You read about the tribulation and you say, ah, you know, it just seems so fanciful and so far off. I tell you, if you were living in a war-torn country, you would probably have no problem understanding the tribulation. And so us in the West, through a time of great prosperity, we've kind of been lulled to sleep. I don't think many people in this room are left that have that fought in a war or lived during times of war. We haven't seen uh, war on our own soil since the Civil War. But you ask people who are believers in countries where your life is at stake every day just being a believer, and they have no trouble being on guard and waiting for the tribulation to come. Jesus says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. Praise God for His mercy that the tribulation is only seven years, and the great tribulation is only three and a half. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. The elect, I don't believe that is talking about Christian believers. I believe they're gone already. I believe that the elect is referring to those who come to faith after the rapture, and to those who come to saving faith who are Jews. God always refers to the nation Israel as the elect, but he also refers to Gentiles who are believers as the elect. If the days were any longer of the tribulation, then, then he's saying nobody would be able to endure to the end. So he's keeping the time short. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, and do, do not believe him. I think that's the greatest instruction for us this morning. If we are here during the tribulation, and somebody comes and says, I'm Jesus, or there he is, do not believe them. Do not believe them. Jesus will come back in such a way that we will know it is he. There will be no doubt. And yet there will be these false Christs and false prophets. They'll show signs and wonders in order to lead astray the elect if possible. 
But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. He's telling us now, telling us through the Scriptures, this is everything that you need to know. Put your faith in Christ. If you're here during the tribulation, wait, wait out the seven years in hiding and don't believe when somebody says, I'm Jesus, or there He is. And if you see prophets doing signs and wonders, be cautious of them too. And let me tell you why. Islamic eschatology closely parallels Christian eschatology. Very closely. In Islamic eschatology, there's three main figures who end up coming. And they're the equal and opposite to the true people in our eschatology. It's very demonic, very deceptive. You heard our friends who minister in Muslim countries talk about how they know who Jesus is. And they even like hearing about Jesus. Why is that? Islamic eschatology teaches there is a Jesus. There is a Jesus. He was a prophet. He wasn't God. He wasn't God's son. He's a prophet. He didn't die on a cross. He was taken up to heaven, much like Elijah, and he's going to come back during the end times. Hmm. So we believe Jesus is going to come back during the end times, and they have a Jesus who calls himself Jesus who comes back during the end times. could be very confusing for people. Before their Jesus comes back, this figure named Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, comes. And he's the 12th Imam. And you've maybe heard on the news, the, who's the crazy guy in Iran? Ahmadinejad. He's always talking about the 12th Imam's going to come. The 12th Imam's going to come. When, when we stormed into Baghdad, there were pictures in the palace of the 12th Imam. And guess how he's going to come? On a... White horse. Jesus is going to come on a white horse. But first, we see when the first seal's broken, this world leader is going to come on a white horse. Is it an actual horse? I don't know. Could be. Maybe he's got a big white tank or something. You know, I don't know, but we'll know. And the Mahdi is going to come and he's going to slaughter the, the Jews and he's going to bring about a time of peace and prosperity like the world's never seen. And everyone's going to love this guy and they're going to say, we give you all the power because you'll be able to distribute the world's resources in a way that's fair and everyone will have plenty of food to eat and plenty of money to spend. And um, Doesn't that sound like the Jewish Messiah except for the part about slaughtering the Jews? Messiah is supposed to come and bring about a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. Well, after the Mahdi comes, this prophet comes to help him. And Islam says that's the real Jesus. And yet in our eschatology, clearly there's this false prophet who comes and helps Antichrist. They call him the little horn. And he does signs and wonders and leads people astray. The Islamic Jesus prophet character is supposed to be the true Jesus, and he comes and he does signs and wonders, and he converts infidels to faith in Muhammad. And that's disturbing, and yet, yes, that's exactly how you'd expect Satan to work. And now there's this third character who comes. His name is the Dajjal, D-A-J-A-L. He's 
Islam's idea of the false prophet. And guess how they describe the Dajjal? The Dajjal calls himself Jesus, the Son of God. So the very person that Islamic theology warns them to stay away from is the true Jesus. Why it's so important that we send missionaries into these countries and teach them what the Scriptures really have to say. Because they believe that the Scriptures are God's Word. They've just been taught it's corrupted. And most people don't have an opportunity in Muslim countries to read the Scriptures or read the Koran. They just listen to their leaders tell them what it says in there. When you actually read the Koran, it's, uh, it's nothing like what the people are told. It says that, again, how do you keep people in the dark? Don't allow them to read. Don't give them access to the truth. Same thing happened in Christianity during the Dark Ages and then the Reformation and the invention of the printing press got God's Word into people's hands. And it was amazing that the church at the time didn't want God's Word in the hands of the people. Anytime somebody is trying to subvert and close the Word of God from people, you know Satan's at work. Satan does not want people to know the truth. Therefore, then, who's going to be around during the tribulation? Again, with open hand, I, I say just the Jews and unbelievers. I do believe the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation starts, but I could be wrong. So be ready either way. Be ready. Lots of reasons why I believe that, but one of the main ones is is that the tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob not being anyone named Jacob in here. So what what an unfortunate name to have, right? Jacob is is what refers to the nation Israel. So this is a specific time of tribulation for, for the Jews which tells me I'm hoping that the church won't be present for this. Here's what I want to do to close, though. And I did this first service, kind of worked out well. You know, we hear this teaching, and we're waiting for the pastor to tell us, well, what should our response be? And I think that we should train the flock to be able to do that for yourself. When you walk away from a sermon or a Bible study, you should be asking... What should my response be? What should my response to God be? How should I live differently based on this teaching? Because again, the tribulation is so big, and if you read these judgments, they're so terrible that the temptation is just to go, too much for me. I'm just going to go back to what I can control, what I can get my hands around, everyday life, my vacation that's coming up working towards that next promotion, that next raise. I already know what I'm going to spend the money on, you know. And it's okay to enjoy these gifts, but these temporary gifts are not what we're supposed to be fully focused on. So, yeah, raise your hand. Emmett, what's one response? Amen. Be busy fulfilling the Great Commission. People need to know Jesus before he returns. What else should be our response to this teaching? supposed to sober you up and think soberly here. How about someone over here? Yeah, we have, we have the evangelism definitely evangelized. 
Are you sure you know Jesus? Are you sure you know Jesus? Evangelize your own heart. I evangelize my own heart every day. Not that I lost my salvation and gained it back and lost it and gained it back. I just want to look for fruits of the Spirit. Look for fruits of the Spirit. And how am I living my life? Am I living my life as a testimony to Christ? What's maybe a third one? Trust that God's in control. Thank you, Kevin. That is on my list too. Trust. I mean, it's, it's going to happen and we've seen biblical prophecy be fulfilled and we see these current events and it's all, it's going to happen. It's amazing. God is awesome. Don't be afraid. Let go of control. Let, let Him control your life. Let Him control your life. What's another one? I got two more on my personal list, but I want to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, you can keep going back to evangelism. We really shouldn't pass over that because it is kind of one of the things we tend to neglect. Well, I'll give you my other two. Actually, my wife gave me one of these. So She said, don't be surprised if your circumstances get worse. Don't we always expect life's supposed to keep getting better? And the, well, it's okay to have hope. But our joy should not be dependent on our circumstances. And in fact, Jesus said there's going to be more wars and rumors of wars, more famines, more pestilence, more earthquakes, more natural disasters, greater intensity and greater frequency. It's the world who thinks everything's going to get better, that man's going to fix everything. Man's going to fix the climate. Man's going to fix... You know, everything. Well, we'll get it right eventually. Just give us enough time and enough money, and somehow we'll fix it all. But as Christians, we ought to understand that this world is passing away. This is not heaven, though God gives a little taste of heaven by His grace. Fifthly, live sober-mindedly. Let go of those petty disputes and worldly pursuits. There's just no room after you've read about the tribulation for petty disputes anymore. When you read about fiery judgment and plague and pestilence and this new world order and this leader and the Antichrist and all this, there's just no time for that petty grudge. There's just no time for chasing after, you know, the next car or the next whatever is on your list. Let it go and be busy about things of our Lord's kingdom. Let me close with this passage in Matthew 24, which is a parallel passage to Mark 13. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. We all want to know when is this going to start. God is not going to tell us when it starts. It could be right now, tomorrow, next week, next year, or another thousand years from now. If I had to guess, I feel like it's in the next hundred years. Um, just the way history is going. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Do you get the picture there? Everybody was just going on life as usual. And here's this guy building this enormous ship on dry land. And they mocked him and scoffed at him. 
Don't be like the mockers and scoffers. I know it's hard to live each day like the tribulation's coming. You know, don't live in a state of panic and fear. It's just living where you, it's a sober-mindedness. Yes, I enjoy life. Give God the blessing. But this is not all there is. I'm not going to get so wrapped up in the here and now. There's so much better to come. And I need to live life sober-mindedly, so unlike those people who got caught off guard, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. A great passage, by the way, for evangelism. great passage to evangelize people. Let's pray. Remember, there's a baptism class right after this service down in 402. Father God, God of all history, we see human history careening towards this great end. Your judgments are terrible, but your mercy is so sweet. Thank you for our salvation in Christ that we don't have to fear the tribulation. And yet, Lord, help us to live sober-mindedly, dropping petty disputes in our worldly pursuits, and instead pursue the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. These other things will be added to us, Lord. Forgive us when we take our eye off the ball. Help us get back in the saddle today, being about your business. And we eagerly await your return. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.